The text underlying the sermon today comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. If you'd like to read this passage along with me, you will find it on page 984 of the Blue Pew Bible. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. This is the very word of God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the very word of God. Let us... uh... Let's pray again uh, to ask God's strength and blessing upon what we do. Lord, we we pray that Christ will be exalted, that we will feed upon him all the more, that we will value him, treasure him, exalt him, depend upon him, Live in Him. Manifest Him. Oh Lord, may more and more He become the middle of everything we are, the middle of everything we do, and everything we think. Lord, we know we're on that path. We've begun a good work in us. We thank You that You will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Move us forward, Lord. We thank you that this is your design before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us that you knew us, loved us, and set a course in action that we would finally be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray, do that even now, according to your design, your purpose, which cannot be thwarted. We rest in you, mighty King. Amen. Okay, kids. A long time ago, in a land far, far away, uh, there was a kingdom. And in this kingdom, there was a village that was at the very far reaches of the kingdom. And during the harvest season, during the growing harvest season... The lands around this village became extremely parched and there was almost no food brought in that year. So this village was in desperation for food. And 
they became so hungry that they began to starve this village. And messengers went out to the rest of the kingdom. The king was a gracious king, a good king. And he first began to gather food from all the rest of the kingdom because most of the kingdom had good rains and good production. And so as he gathered all this food, he also decided that he would help them in the meantime. And he did that by having all the artists in his castle paint pictures of food. And then he had his group of wizards. Yes, sorry. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about wizards this morning. This all make-believe. Right. Um, but he had them do a little incantation over the pictures so that when the pictures were sent to the people in the village, they could look at the pictures. And it didn't exactly fill them, but it gave them hope and it made them feel like they weren't as hungry as they were. It gave them strength every day and they didn't feel like they were starving so much. And it was really wonderful once these, all these pictures, and they were wonderful pictures, amazing pictures of this of food of every kind that you could imagine. So they would just feast upon these pictures and look at these pictures and have the greatest hope of what was coming. Because the king said, here's what's coming to you in your village. So the day came when all the food finally got there. In fact, the food was so much greater and more beautiful and more fragrant than anything they could have imagined and anything that they saw in these pictures. It just blew your mind. It, it made the pictures look like absolutely nothing almost compared to the real thing when it finally got there. But here's a, here's a really sad thing, a, a tragic thing, all, unimaginable thing that happened. There were a few in the village that ran out, saw the food, and gave themselves to it and began to feast immediately. But do you know what? Most of the village didn't go after the food. Most of the village sat there in their houses and kept holding on to these pictures of food. And they never did eat of the food. They just kept looking at the pictures and looking at the pictures because they would gotten so accustomed to the pictures, they thought that was the real thing. They thought that was the real food. And of course, in time... They starved and they died, even as the food was right there available for them to eat. That, I think, is a picture of what was facing the Colossians in terms of the Jewish believers or the Jewish uh, people that were there in Colossae. I think this is a picture, basically, of what happened with the Jews in that they had these pictures of the coming Messiah, the real Savior Himself, and they held on to the pictures while they neglected the Messiah Himself. And so we're going to look at this and and 
what the uh, Colossian Christians were facing in the pressure from these Jewish people. And then the protection that Paul wants to give them in this passage. So we'll look at it in two points. Not your classic three, uh, just two. Okay, first, the situation they faced in Colossae. Okay, the situation they faced in Colossae. And then the satisfaction that they had in Christ. the, The situation that they faced in Colossae and the satisfaction that they had in Christ. Now, he begins with the therefore, right, in verse 16. And this, this comes from this wonderful climax, and I've, I listened to, uh, to Brian's wonderful sermon from last week as he talked about the Christ giving himself up on the cross. And at the climax of this, in verse 15, he talks about the disarming of the powers. Therefore, see, therefore, since you've died and been raised, therefore, since he's disarmed the rulers, therefore, since you've been filled in Christ, therefore, since uh, you have forgiveness through this Christ, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Okay? Now, food and drink and the the terms that are spoken of here and in Romans and in Galatians talk about clean and unclean. These are Jewish categories. And so the Jews had, uh, and, and they were told in the Old Testament that you'd be cut off from the people of God if you didn't maintain these food laws or if you didn't maintain the festival laws, the days that are spoken of here. Uh, these three uh, are mentioned as a unit again and again in the Old Testament, sometimes in reverse order. It takes the day, Sabbath, the month, new uh, moon, and then the yearly festivals. But either way, they're mentioned regularly, and it's clearly a Jewish concern here. And in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, these things were just cranked down even tighter so that it became life and death as to whether you kept the Sabbath, the festivals, the new moon, and you kept these dietary laws. So the Colossian Christians, many of whom were Gentiles, couldn't help but brush up against the Jewish synagogue because of the interrelationship of the two. First, they realized that their heritage came from the Jews, right? In fact, uh, as late as several centuries later, there had to be rules against still attending the synagogue. That's how much interplay there was between Jew and Christian in those early centuries. And so this is likely, he's speaking of the... Uh, the very real threat that was known from the Jews in this area, and it wouldn't be just in Colossae, it would be in other cities as well, of these Christians being challenged by the Jews as to these laws, saying that if you don't keep these food laws, if you don't keep these festivals You cannot be a part of the people of God. It's clear in the Bible. 
And it's clear that God will exclude you from His people. He will exclude you from fellowship with Him if you do not keep to these laws. Now, throw that in with the developing theology of the Jews. And and we see this a lot in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You may have heard of those discovered uh, late in our history. But they outline the thinking of people uh, is called the Qumran uh, community. And we have a lot of insight into the thinking of those uh, in that uh, day and time uh, and of this sect, and and it spread throughout uh, much of the Roman Empire as well. And part of their uh, thinking is that through these disciplines, through this severe treatment of the body, as Paul talks about it, uh, through abstaining and fasting and these disciplines, you would enter into special fellowship with God. In fact, when he says here, uh, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, that word is basically, it is the same word as you'll find in chapter 3, verse 12, for humility. But in the Old Testament, this word for humility is used often in connection with fasting. And that's very likely what's being talked about here. Severe fasting, perhaps, because of how it's connected later in verse 23 with asceticism and severity to the body. But notice the connection between asceticism and worship of angels. And I would take this to mean not not worshiping angels, but the worship that the angels are engaged in, okay? It can be interpreted that way, and I follow the interpreters that say that. And that was a common effort and theme in Jewish thinking, that through these disciplines, you could, in fact, in Qumran, it's it's a constant theme of entering into the holy place where the angels are, being joined with the angels in their worship of God, being admitted, you see, into the intimate place with God through these disciplines, through this asceticism, through keeping the food laws, through keeping the uh, festivals and the Sabbath. This prepared you and enabled you and purified you so that you are worthy to enter into the same worship of the angels. Now you can see how for these Christian believers, when they rub shoulders with these tough apologists, these tough uh, Jews in, in, in sense of being able to argue their point, pressing in upon them saying, you're not in... You're not disciplining yourself. You're not keeping these laws. You're not entering into the worship of angels. This this Christ, whatever He may be, He's not getting you where you need to be. That's why the emphasis all the way through this letter is upon the fullness of Christ, as Brian underscored last week. That you have everything in Christ and you don't need these other Things that are set before you. And this helps us to understand why Paul has the phrase in chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is another indicator of, of his defending them for not being circumcised, because that was another pressure upon them. You must be circumcised. 
Interestingly, in a sister passage, and it's easy to remember because it's the same verse 2.11 in Ephesians, Paul says, those who are the so-called circumcision say that you are the so-called uncircumcision. You see his point? There he's saying they call themselves the circumcision, but they're not the circumcision. Later in Philippians, he actually says, no, they're not the circumcised. And this is graphic, but he says, they're the mutilated. Think, whoa, that's, what do you mean? He says, no, they say they're the circumcised. I say, without Christ, without the one to whom it pointed, it's just mutilation. It's nothing more. You have been circumcised in the true circumcision without hands. Your heart has been circumcised. So this is also a defense of their relationship to Christ. Don't let them tell you that you need circumcision. You have the true circumcision. You don't need their so-called circumcision, which in effect is mutilation. You don't need that. And that's why later in chapter 3... Uh, verse 11. He underscores this. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, but Christ is all and in all. This has to do with his defending them against Jewish encroachment. Just like in Galatians, two times Paul says, it's not whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, uncircumcised. Or circumcised, this doesn't matter, but it's faith working itself out in love. Or later in Galatians, he says, it's a new creation, not circumcision or uncircumcision. And you see in Galatians, he's faced with, they're faced with the same issue of these, of this Jewish encroachment of, of pulling them, drawing them away from Christ, uh, to, uh, the Judaistic way of thinking. Now, we should ask, what are some of our temptations in this? We're not faced particularly, are we, with Jewish encroachment. But the fundamental idea of displacing Christ and offering something else that draws us near to God or brings us into the life of blessedness and meaning and significance. Why? They're all over the place in that regard. Uh, the most obvious is health and wealth. Uh, you can hear, for instance, and I'll name a name. You can hear, for instance, Joel Osteen speak for 30 minutes. You will rarely hear him speak of Jesus. Certainly, he doesn't open up again and again, week after week, of who Christ is. But he simply talks about health and wealth. I tell you that this is... A headless religion, as we, as our title mentions, that is without Christ and, and telling people that they can have life without making Christ the absolute center of it. This can happen with something like secret ways to get ahead in the Christian life, keys that will get you there. One that is more centrally evangelical, but happened a few years ago, and I may offend some for saying this, is the prayer of Jabez, okay? 
The prayer of Jabez was this one little prayer of one man in, in Chronicles who... And, and then this prayer was made to be the end all of all prayers, the prayer you're to pray for 30 days. And there was a version for teenagers and children, and it was on cups and everything else and made millions of dollars, okay? Why one prayer from the Old Testament that, make, that went for one or two lines and we ignore all the rich prayers of everywhere else in the Bible? Why? How? And this prayer isn't even focused on Christ. It had nothing to do with Christ itself I would submit to you that here again is some way to have fullness of life and enrichment in life and the blessings of God poured out in you that aren't centered in Christ himself this can happen as well in efforts of performance and self will but we're going to uh, hold off on that until uh, we get to some other things in this passage. But anything that would displace Christ, anything that's taking you away from making the death and resurrection of Christ the centerpiece of your change is, is pulling you away from the one who is the head. As he says there in verse 19... They were not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together. And I would submit to you that for Jewish thinking to have, let's call it, the cardboard left over, okay? The cardboard of Jewish thinking, the cardboard of these rituals of the festivals, of food and drink, of circumcision, and to be holding on to this cardboard... That cardboard's no better than any other cardboard. <laughs> My point is, if, if you're in that village and you have pictures of food, that, those pictures are no better for you than pictures of trees or pictures of rock or pictures of buildings. My point is this, and this is Paul's point in this passage. Jewish religion minus Jesus is just another religion. It is just another headless religion, Christless religion. And that's why it can be called, even the Jews themselves call it, but philosophy. He even calls it the tradition of men. Isn't that surprising? He can call it the tradition of men. And he's in good stead here because this is taken from Isaiah 29. When Isaiah claims that the Jews themselves were following their own traditions against the word of God, Jesus himself in Matthew 15 went to that same passage speaking to the Pharisees and said, you are teaching as the doctrines of God. They're just the traditions of men and you're ignoring God's word. So Paul is following in line with Isaiah and with Jesus saying of these Jews that they may have the look of true religion. They may be claiming themselves that we worship the true God and yet it's a tradition of man and without Christ it is no better than any other religion. Cardboard is cardboard. If you don't have the real food there, it's just cardboard. 
Well, Paul presses in upon them the satisfaction that they have in Christ. In verse 17, he says, These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The word substance is literally body, the body of Christ. But it has to do with the reality is in Christ. And you know the picture of a body's coming and maybe it's coming around the corner and you see the shadow of that body before the body shows up, right? That's the picture even here in the Old Testament. And Hebrews talks a lot about this using two words, this word shadow and a word copy. So, and that's why I use the, the cardboard illustration to start with, or the pictures, because the pictures are of the true thing. And there would be no need for the pictures, there would be no point in the pictures if there wasn't something real coming later, you see. It's not that the rituals and the sacrifices and all of those things were anything by themselves. They were only Pictures, they meant nothing in and of themselves except that they pointed to what was to come. And the writer of Hebrews says that. They're pictures, copies, shadows of the good things to come, he says. And here, he simply says, the substance belongs to Christ. You have the substance, you see. So don't be pulled away to cardboard. You have the real food. Don't sink your teeth into this anymore. You've been delivered from that. That you have the substance which belongs to Christ. And all of these things simply pointed to Him. That's His first point. It'd be like looking at a job site and after several months of, of seeing scaffolding up, you, you go in there and you realize... There are people living in there. And you go and you start asking questions and you realize they're trying to live in the scaffolding. You know? Where's the building? No, we're, we're going to stay in the scaffolding. We're living in the scaffolding. Well, isn't it kind of like wet and dangerous out here? And you don't have any sinks or bathtubs or beds or, yeah, but we're living in the scaffolding. You see, that's what the Jews were doing, trying to live in the scaffolding, which was just set up for the building, which is Christ. Scaffolding, doesn't matter if the scaffolding is for this building or that, it's just scaffolding by itself. It has meaning, it has wonderful, glorious meaning. In fact, we can embrace all these wonderful pictures in the Old Testament because they're so rich in meaning. Uh, now that we've seen what they point to in Christ. Secondly, you see, not only that he is the substance, but in verse 20 he says, with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, the word spirits is not in the original, it's just to the elementals. And some translations have the elemental forces Uh, Most basically, in the thinking of the day, they were the elements of the universe, fire, water, uh, air, and and, uh, earth. But these were always connected to spiritual forces that controlled them. 
And this should be taken together with what he says in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So very likely, though the the elements are prominent, the, the spirits behind them are as well included in verse 20. And he says, you have died to these things. Or as he puts it in verse 15, he has disarmed these controllers over you. They don't have you anymore. And it's a little puzzling as to in what sense did these spiritual forces have this power over us because it's connected with his uh, getting rid of the legal things against us in verse 14. So he removes the legal things and in doing that disarms these forces. What's that connection that... As he removes the legal condemnation against us, he also releases us from these powers. And you have to understand that in the New Testament, there's this wrapped together thing where Paul actually one place says, we died to sin. Okay, Romans 6.2, we can understand that. But in another place, in Romans 7, he says, we've died to the law. In the same way he says we've died to sin. And Paul explains that in Romans because he says, apart from the Spirit of God, us and the law together is not a good thing. We bang our heads against that law. In fact, not only does it not do us any good, we actually become worse under the law, Paul says. It starts pointing out our sin. We feel more condemned and we get worse under the law. We don't get better. That's how bad we are. Paul says, that's how sinful we are. The wonderful, good, spiritual thing called the law. When it hits our flesh, we get worse and not better. And then these are connected with right here. He says, we've died to these forces. Because you see, when... Satan tempted us to leave God and we turned against God. Then God's law became our enemy. It condemned us and we became worse under that. And now the picture is that apart from Christ, apart from His Spirit, the law becomes a painful, destructive force in our life because we are so evil and these forces are ultimately in control of our lives, even if we're under the law apart from Christ, apart from God's grace. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say concerning uh, Satan himself that he had the power of death and enslaved us in the fear of death. And it was only Christ's death that removed that power over us. So there's this complex. We're in sin and death and the law even makes us worse even though it's perfect and good. And all of this is used by the enemy himself to control us and govern us. We're in a bad state, do you see? We're in a terrible state. When the good things of God apart from God's grace, don't do us any good, but make us worse. And so, we must be 
released from all of these things by His grace. And He gives you a little picture of what this kind of religion is like in verse 23. He says, These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, I favor a different translation of that, the NET. And it's, I won't go into all the details, but here's the bottom line. Notice how it reads. Even though they have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and false humility achieved by an unsparing treatment of the body, a wisdom with no true value, they in reality result in fleshly indulgence. I think even the better translation and understanding is not simply that it does no good, but it actually promotes it. And this is in keeping with Paul's teaching in Romans 7. That these things only bring about more enslavement. And here's the sad and scary thing, brothers and sisters, and I want to talk about performance just a little bit here, is that when we are caught up in a performance basis with God, depending on what we can do to win His affection, what we do to win His favor, and making our obedience the test as to whether God will accept me or not, rather than Jesus. It can even sound humble. It can even sound religious. You are submitting yourself to the elemental forces of this world. You are submitting yourself to the powers of darkness by abandoning Christ and the safety and the forgiveness and the wholeness and the acceptance and the favor that you can have in Christ Jesus. And when you begin to push away and even under the guise of, well, I don't deserve it. I, I, I don't deserve His forgiveness. Oh, I'm too wrong. I'm too evil. I've done so many things. You're playing into the hand of the evil one himself. You're putting yourself under the powers of elemental forces. Any performance, any effort to do something, whether it's severe fasting, whether it's keeping certain days, whatever it may be, in order to win God's favor is to put yourself under evil forces. And verse 23 shows on top of that, that at least these have no value in making you more holy. In fact, probably reads, they just make it worse and worse and worse. Why is that? It's because what you need for change is Jesus Christ. That's what you must have for change. That's why he says in verse 19... Here's the problem. They're not clinging, grasping hold of Christ as the head who holds us together as a people. 
We only know humility and joy and peace and comfort and forgiveness in Christ. And that's the only atmosphere in which we can change. The only atmosphere in which I can, my heart can be filled so that it begins to have a different force. Not pulling into it, but pushing out to other people because of the vigor of the joy that I have in Christ and His forgiveness. Because of the revelation of this majestic God. No longer a headless religion. All religions aside from Christianity are headless in that sense because there's no rescuer. There's no one who comes in the flesh to become a man. No God who does this. No God who takes upon himself flesh and lives a perfect human life and sacrifices himself for his people and then is raised for his people and reigns as a man for his people. The God-man. There is no magnificent sacrifice and anybody recognizes that's the most glorious thing in humanity is when one sacrifices for another. Guess what? That is God's sacrifice for us. No other religion has it because they're headless religions. Like a guillotine has just chopped the head off because they don't have Christ. Christ. There is one love story in the world. And it's that God took upon himself flesh. And at the sacrifice of himself, he rescued his people so he could live with them forever. There's nothing like it. And that's the great tragedy of Judaism. The great tragedy that they were faced there. The great tragedy of all religions that are made by man. That are just human tradition is that they ignore the revelation of God in Christ. Well, much more to be said. Our time is up. I urge you, though, keep Christ at the middle, (laughs) at the middle of everything, clinging to Him, looking to Him, finding yourself in Him. And that certainly is where Paul moves on as he says, in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, If you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we pray that you would rescue us from performance. Rescue us, Lord. Rescue us who are familiar with Christianity, from what amounts to a spiritual leprosy, a deadness, numbness, as a leper would, couldn't feel things, couldn't, couldn't feel what was happening with his hands and his feet, and, and therefore would eventually hurt himself so badly that he would begin to lose his extremities. Oh Lord, we who've been around Christianity for a long time and I pray for our children those who are raised in Christian homes who so often can have this spiritual leprosy where they'd rather feed on cardboard than real food of Jesus they shrug their shoulders at Christ 
Oh, Lord, we pray for them as we pray for ourselves that you would give us eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus himself. Lord, that you would enable us to let nothing, nothing interfere with our embrace in Christ and our joy in him. Lord, we pray that you would give us that wisdom Especially give us that passion, that love for Christ, that admiration, that adoration, that honor, that delight in Him that He really is and becomes our treasure above all other treasures. Oh Lord, we thank You that this is what You are doing in us and You will continue to do it in Christ Jesus. Amen.